0: Well, good morning, good to see you, nice uh, nice day out there, but uh, as you think about what's going to do this afternoon, just again, let's focus just for a little bit here, but uh, it is good to see you, and uh, we uh, want to, as I said, mention uh, mentioned our pastor and his family as they travel, and uh, so my, he has a gifted voice, doesn't he? I mean, he has a preacher's voice. It just carries. Mine's not that way. I apologize if you don't hear it well. I'll try to speak up, but it's not going to be like him. But he's able to do that. So, uh, anyway, we're going to uh, look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And uh, the title of the message is The Journey Toward Unity. The Journey Toward Unity. There's a fellow by the name of Dr. Travis Bradbury, some of you may have heard of him. He's an award-winning co-author of Emotional Intelligence 2.0 and the co-founder of Talent Smart EQ, He's the world's leading provi- which is the world's leading provider of emotional intelligence tests and training serving more than 70 pro- 75% of Fortune 500 companies. In an article posted on TalentsmartEQ.com, Dr. Bradbury listed eight characteristics of considerate people and how steps can be taken to become more considerate in work in life. Now, some of these will fit you and some of them won't. And you'll say, I don't know, what, what in the world is he talking about? But number one is show up on time. By doing that, you're telling the person, your time is as important as my time. Number two, be deliberately, (coughs) he puts, empathic or empathetic. What he means is to seek to understand when you're in interaction with somebody or in relationship, seek to understand them, where they're at, and be t- behave according to that understanding, gathering their understanding, their perspective. Number three, apologize when you need to. And in parentheses, he says, and don't when you don't. And his advice is if, if you've offended someone or you've done something to hurt someone, apologize. Even if you think you offended somebody or you think and you're not sure, apologize. This one, I don't know how this will fly with you, but this is, this is number four. Smile a lot. And you've heard this. It takes 40, around 42 muscles to file To smile. Takes more work to smile than it does frown. But it's worth it. It creates a positive atmosphere. It creates a context for conversation that can head in a positive direction. That's some of you may say, and I I thought this, you know, you can't be fake about your smile, you know, you can't just plasma like, like in a picture. But <coughs> smiling, if you're intentional, can create a positive context for your relationships, number five, mind your manners. Where's that one <laughs> in our society? manners doesn't that sound obsolete? so I mean things like you know no elbows on the table. I don't know, you know we I put my elbows on the table, but I don't know where that manner came from, but it did. But mind your manners. In other words, it places another person's interest above your own. When you consider someone else and you're polite to them and you're minding your manners with them. And you know that statement, it places another person's interest above your own, is a very biblical statement. We're going to look at that. Number six, be emotionally intelligent. This is, this author's, you know, this is his uh, salary maker here, I guess. I don't know. But don't allow feelings to control your actions, behavior. Don't fly off. <coughs> Number seven, try to find a way for everybody to win. If at all possible, and Paul says this, right? If at all possible, live peaceably with all men. So try, try to find a way for everybody to win is considerate. If at all possible, seek a win-win. Now some would have a hard time because they feel like if you try to do that, you may compromise the truth. That's not what Paul was saying, but it certainly was an intention in relationships to pursue that goal. Number eight, act on your intuition when it comes to other people's needs. And what he means by this is, and and you've probably done this in work or at home, or you see someone and you're sort of reading the nonverbals. You say, man, you look like you got a lot on your mind. look like you're having a hard time. Is there anything I can do? It's, it's an that intuition that maybe they don't say anything, but you sense that. And there's nothing wrong with communicating that. It only communicates a sense of care. So we're talking about the journey toward Unity. Those were things, and if we're going to be on that journey, and we're going to seek that, which Jesus prayed about, unity, then how are we going to do that? Is the concern to be considerate a Christian concern? Have we as a church become weary of consideration demanded under the banner of political correctness? Is God really concerned that we are considerate? Or does he want us just to be truthful? What role does consideration play in the kingdom value of unity <clears throat> we hear as part of the personal prayer of Jesus recorded in John 17 the desire of our savior that his followers be one that's a journey toward unity in John 17:20 20 through 23 Jesus prays. This is Jesus' personal prayer that John records for us. It's not the Lord's Prayer of Matthew 6. It's him praying, pouring out his heart. And he prays, I pray not only for these, and that's the people, his disciples, and his followers that were there that day. He says, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word, <clears throat> may they all be what, what, one. As you fa- as you Father are in me, and I in you. That's the kind of oneness he's talking about. He's praying about. That's a pretty close oneness, right? May they also be in us so that the world, what? May believe what? That you sent me. That pursuit, this journey has everything to do about our evangelism. It has everything to do about our apologetic. It has everything to do about pointing people to Jesus. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. That's quite a message. To follow Jesus in light of his heart's desire in this prayer, we find ourselves on a journey to unity, to be one. So let's read our passage, Philippians 2, beginning with verse 1. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is. If any consolation of love, and there is. If any fellowship with the Spirit, and there is. If any affection and mercy, and there are. Make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of what? What is it? Selfishness or selfish ambition. Or what? Conceit. But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. (laughs) I don't know about you, but that's hard. Everyone, in verse 4, should look out not only for his own interests, but what? Also, for the interest of others. And then he says, and then he goes into verse 5. Adopt the same attitude. How are you going to do this? Well, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, and (laughs) now he begins to describe this attitude, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited or grasped or seized or held on to. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, what we're made of. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's a lot there, but it's about this journey. In the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians, Paul speaks to this congregation about this imperative journey. If you're if you're going to follow me, if you're going to glorify God, if you're going to be someone that shines a light so that they may know that God sent the Father sent me. This is the journey. And it involves Living a life worthy of the gospel, he says that. He says that in the previous verse. In in um, verse in chapter one. It calls for honesty. Truthfulness, forgiveness, sacrifice, humility, service, and deference. This pursuit conflicts with the me first attitude. An attitude of preferential expectations, victim mentality, zealous arrogance, and prideful independence. I ain't going to do that. You may say, I, need, I ain't going to do that. And then we may find justifications to not do that. In chapter 4, we learn that there are two women, Euodia and Syntyche, in the Philippian church who were at odds. They were church leaders and at odds. Maybe one of their children made fun of one of them's name. I mean, can you imagine being in church and your name's Sinticky? You know how kids, you know, kids will make, when names hit them, they, they, just, they just come out with it, you know? It's funny to them. That's not, that's, that's probably not what it was. But they were at odds. Perhaps one or both had quit participating in the congregation. They pulled away. Perhaps they were polarizing the congregation. You know how sometimes Baptist business meetings go. People don't show up for church for years, and then a controversial issue comes up, and everybody's out recruiting members to vote. I'm not saying that's what Yodia and Sintiki were doing, but... It's been known to happen. What was Paul's admonition to the church? Paul instructs his church to become people who encourage a reconciliation process to unity, as difficult and delicate as that might be. Perhaps this is why God repeatedly uses marriage in scripture as an example of the importance of unity in our spiritual walk. What is it? The two shall become one. And the two don't lose their identity in that, right? They're two individuals, but they're coming together. And sometimes you rub each other a little the wrong way. But you stayed the course. (coughs) You may be one of these people, and I I apologize. (laughs) I've heard people say, we've been married 50 years and never had a disagreement. I think they got a bad memory or they're lying. (laughs) Or I'm just way out of touch here. The two shall become one. Paul says there are four elements of the Christian walk that makes this journey to unity possible and profitable. One is, it says in verse 1 of chapter 2, if there is any encouragement in Christ. And there is. These, These four things are stated in a condition that Paul uses in the language to say, If there is, and there is, since there is, you can act this way. So the presence of Christ, the encouragement in Christ. If there be any exhortation, let it be in Christ. It takes exhortation, not just consolation, not just comfort, but exhortation, encouraging, coaching this way. What's he coaching to? He's coaching to his attitude. He's coaching us to his attitude, to be like him. <coughs> the second thing is, if any consolation of love or the extension of love, and it's there, God has provided that to the, to the Christ follower. you say but I'm not him so how can I follow him in this extension of love we can do it because we have the same love in our lives present and existent he placed it there when when in Matthew when Matthew records be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect he's not saying be s- sinless he knows that's impossible But in that verse, when he says that, he's speaking about the completeness of our love. And he's saying, being complete in your love as your father, make that your goal. You can do it. It resides within you to do that. That's part of my plan. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that I can have all sorts of religious accomplishments but without love what? I have done what? Nothing. Nothing. Let me say it again. Nothing. More importantly, Jesus says in Matthew 7 that the most self-pronounced and actively impressive persons may be the furthest from the kingdom mission. Not everyone who says to me what? Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom. And their response is what? But, but, did you not notice? We've prophesied in your name. We've cast out demons in your name. Jesus says, what? Depart I what? I knew you once, but now I'm not so sure. Did he say that? I never knew you. That one sort of shakes me to my toes a little bit. (laughs) The love of Christ in our hearts will create tension in our lives because of the resistance of our human nature and the challenges to our traditions. Somebody mentioned to me about how I'm dressed today, right? And, and they said it in a great way, in a great way. And I appreciate it because there was a time... When I got up here, and I'm not saying you, you're wrong if you do this, but there was a time when I had the three-piece suit and the tie. Now, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, sister. <laughs> but, but those traditions sometimes we have. Get in the way. And the love of Christ challenges those things in our lives. And it's sort of what our pastor was preaching last week. Sometimes we make those little things the big things, and the big things the small things. The extension of love goes beyond our natural capacity. But it is there. Then he says... If any fellowship with the Spirit, and there is, if there be any commonness or fellowship, let it be by the Holy Spirit. Christ is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. He came to earth once and will return again. So how do I have the presence of Christ in me? Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, keep my commandment, keep my commands. Okay, I'll try. And I will ask the Father, he says, and I will give you another advocate to help you. Okay, I'll try. Well, listen, I'm going to give you someone to help you and be with you for how long? Forever. So I want to be there in the presence of the Spirit so that you can do this. Jesus continues later in that same chapter to say, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will what? Remind you. See, he knows we're going to forget some things. He knows we're going to put some things to the side because they're not convenient or they're too difficult. He says, but the... The Spirit, the Advocate, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Thus, it is the Spirit that now shapes our attitude. This presence of the Spirit that shapes our attitude so that we may live the Christ-like life. Obviously, we have challenges, pressures, disagreements, injustices, Battles outside of the church, but what about inside? Are we splintering, fighting, accusing, and judging to the result that we don't have to interact with someone? Instead, we separate. We withdraw. That was not Jesus' prayer for us. Jesus did not pray that we withdraw. Are we presenting to the world a, I don't know about you, but have you ever been driving at night, and a car is coming from the opposite way, and their lights are so bright that it's like, where did the road go? I can't see lines, I can't see the road. You ever had that happen? Me too, it's so scary. It's our light so bright, the thing we're trying to shine, that it's blinding the eyes of those that they can't see the Savior. It's about me and him. And I don't do the thing Pastor Ken does, but you know what I'm talking about. And also the supply of mercy and affection. He says, "If any affection and mercy and there is, the human element makes unity a mission. this human element that he's talking about makes the mission more than a theory. It puts flesh on it. Flesh is not always a negative term in Scripture. Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Sometimes it is. But it's talking about the attitude. It's talking about the struggle here. It's talking about the presence and the connection in this created world of God. So, the supply of mercy and affection exists and puts that human element, gives us the ability to connect with those who don't know Him, or maybe those who do, and we have a difference. We feel the emotion, we have the thoughts. This includes the drive, desire, passion, interest with the affections and compassions that Christ had in his mission. Matthew 16, 18 says this. When Peter makes his confession, and Jesus says about that confession, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. He says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon, and on this rock I will build my church, and the what? And the what? The gates? What are gates for? Yeah. But the gates of hell will not what? In the old King James, it said, Prevail, will not overpower. In other words, if we're on mission, those gates, the mission, the gospel, will not prevail. Those gates we can bust open, can't keep us out. In Jesus' prayer in John 17, He prays for his followers, this is what I said earlier, not to be removed from the world, but be delivered from the evil one. He says, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Yeah, the rest of that, Matt. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be one in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one. That the world may know you have sent me, and have loved them as you loved me. Let me go there because that it, it didn't say at all. Okay, he says, um, I am not, in verse 15, he says this in this prayer, I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world, and sanctify them by your truth. He's saying, his prayer was that we don't pull out, that we go. That's what he said in the Great Commission. Go you therefore, or you may have the translation while you are going, but you're going into the world. When we moved to Fort Worth from Missouri, we loaded the Ryder truck on a Saturday and intended to leave that morning. But we had trouble with the brake lights on the dolly that we used to tow our car. And that kept us from leaving on time. We didn't leave until Saturday afternoon. We drove all night and arrived on Sunday morning around 8 o'clock. After packing up the truck, driving down to Fort Worth all the night, pulled in to the gas station, took a nap maybe. So uh, we arrived on Sunday morning around 8 o'clock, bologna floating in the cooler of melted ice water. We had what little furniture we possessed on the truck and n- nowhere to put it when we got there. Now, some of you are judging me already, saying that was poor planning. You may be right. <laughs> so, on Monday morning, I began to search for a place to rent. We rented the two bedroom apartment that we just moved from in Missouri for $115 per month. Yeah. That's, that dates the story a little bit, right? The first place we were shown in Fort Worth was a single dwelling home that was, I believe, was a two-bedroom for $150 per month. It was an old house, and I noticed that it had these sloping floors. So I said, "Nah." We can find something better. Keep in mind, I had to return the rider truck on Wednesday at closing. This was Monday afternoon. We looked for the rest of Monday, all day Tuesday, and into Wednesday before we found the apartment, Wednesday afternoon. And it was more than $150. God taught me a lesson there about contentment. However, before we found that apartment, I saw a listing of a place to rent that had been posted at the seminary. After the landlord answered my call and told me the rental price, I responded that it was more than we could afford. She replied, well, just trust in the Lord and he will provide. And I said, Amen, sister. No, I didn't say that. I did say, Okay, thank you. But I was thinking something differently. And in a confessional way, I'm going to tell you this is what I was thinking I am trusting in the Lord how about you move out of your place, rent it to me for what I can afford, and you trust the Lord for a while. (laughs) That was my thought. Confession. That thought was a reflection of my attitude about my journey. Pretty... (laughs) Pretty mature thinking for a beginning seminary student, right? This was how the journey to Fort Worth, Texas began for us. However, we didn't turn back and we didn't go back to Missouri because apartments were $115. We understood that God had a purpose for our journey to this place. That purpose made it imperative that we stay and continue to fulfill that purpose. And he provided something. He made us pay a little more, but he also provided the way we could pay. So we understand that we are equipped, in what Paul writes, for this journey toward unity. And as scary as that might be, because there are people who don't believe what I believe. And there are some people that are hostile to what I believe. And there are people within churches that are hostile towards one another. But there is a journey that is imperative, that affects our evangelism and our fellowship. And it's this journey toward unity. And then, so we know theoretically, Paul writes, this is there, you have it. But what does it look like when we do it? So Paul then describes in, in uh, verses 5 through 11. What it looks like. And it's the life of Jesus Christ. It's what it looks like. When we do it. First he says. <coughs> Adopt the same attitude. That, as that of Christ Jesus. Who. Verse 6 through 8 he writes. Who existing in the form of God. Did not consider equality with God as something to be exploded or grasped. Instead, instead, he did something different than that. He emptied himself and there's a whole (laughs) just like book of writings in Christian history about that one phrase, emptied himself. But he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. He emptied himself of all advantages. What? What? A, a journey toward unity, and I get rid of all my advantages? He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be held on to and say, I'll go down there, but I'm taking this with me. Omnipresence or whatever. No. He didn't consider that equality to be something grasped and held on to. He didn't cheat. Hebrews tells us he was tempted in all ways that we were. When he was tempted, it was a reality that he could have sinned. But he didn't. He didn't. But he was tempted like we are. That's, that's how he, he identified with us as people. He lived in humility. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form, taking on a likeness. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. He became a servant. Even to the point of death. Even to the point, this is God in the flesh who left heaven and came down to this world that he created and took upon himself what he made us to be. He took upon himself flesh and was tempted. And there's a big difference between, and Paul uses this in Romans, big difference between Adam and Christ. A big difference. In those two men. Was he God? Yeah, he is God. But he willingly gave some things up. That he would identify with us. And conquer what we couldn't. And because of that. The point of death. Even to death on the cross. He was raised a conqueror. We know that Jesus lived a sinless life because he rose from the dead. If he would have sinned, he would have never had the power, there would have never been the power to come out of the grave. But in that resurrection, we have the promise and the confidence, and when we believe in that, to live this kind of life that is unified and focused on the kingdom That triumphs over those things that challenge us and 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 make us want to fight. Our fight is not against what? Our fight is not against what? Flesh and blood. We're all made out of the same thing. It's against what? Principalities and powers in the air. It's the spiritual forces. So he was raised to conquer. So what what does that mean to me? Well, first of all, when he loved heaven to come here, he wanted to. He loved you. He loved me. The Father wanted that. The Spirit wanted that. And if we're going to do it, we're going to have to want to. We have to follow Christ's lead in. It's for anyone and everyone. There's not certain people that God wants me. It's the people that he brings me into contact with. And he has given me the ability. And you say, well, some people are just not, they don't want to hear it. That's right. And Jesus says, don't be surprised. That the world hates you because it hated me before it hated you. But I didn't get out of here. Even though it was very difficult. And in the garden he says, he prays what? Father, let this cup, nevertheless, It was difficult. And it'll be difficult for you and me. And it's for anyone and everyone. Christ died for us all. We'll have to be willing to serve for redemptive purposes. In other words, sacrificially. That's a hard one, right? Paul says in verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourselves. That's sacrificial thinking. And it's part of the gospel mission. And we have to think that way, even though we're also told in Scripture, "Do not take, don't take revenge yourself." Right? What's the Scripture say? But heap coals of fire on the head by kindness. Revenge belongs to who? The Lord, not me. But what about all? The <laughs> what about all those people? You know, it's too hard. It is hard when you're really trying to be considerate for other people and you're trying to give your life for their benefit, and they don't seem to appreciate it. And they would just as soon you go away. And then maybe almost seem like they would nail you to a cross. And Jesus said, Father, what? Forgive them. Because why? They don't really know what they're doing. But he was saying that while he was being crucified. It's a hard thing. But it's the gospel mission. It's the way to unity. It's the way to effective evangelism. It's a lifestyle. Allow the Spirit to form through true humility. If, If I have to tell you how humble I am, then I'm not humble, am I? If I'm trying to talk about how humble I am, then that just negates the whole thing. Don't, I shouldn't put myself down so you may think that I'm great. That's the wrong motive. Am I only fishing for a compliment? Humility does it for God's glory and for their benefit. That's what Jesus did. So, Paul, in writing to this guy, I don't know what, we don't know what happened to Iodia and Syntiki. Hopefully, they got things squared away. But if you're sideways with somebody and you're trying to evangelize, (laughs) that ain't how it works. If you think because you were treated unfairly that you don't have a responsibility, that's not how it works. The cross was not fair. But Jesus said to us, take up your what? cross and follow me it's not that it's impossible it's that it's very impossible and Paul tells us why so we can do it we can do it because we're his on mission to follow him and it's not ours I may have to eat some crow. I may have to swallow hard. I may have to initiate, but I don't think I ought to have to, but it's how we get there. It's how we follow him. You may have in your life, and I know that when we when we speak about the things. That are written in Scripture. I mean, let's just be honest. We all struggle. We're all made out of the same stuff. Only Jesus was the only one that didn't succumb to any of the sin. That's okay. God knew that. But He has a plan that He might be glorified, that the world might look at a place and say, look at those people. I don't know why they seem to really care about one another. They don't always agree, and they don't. But they don't leave. They still support one another. You may, I may have. Some redemptive steps, re- reconciliatory steps that I need to make. Not because the preacher said so, but because Jesus says this is the journey. And I prayed for you in this journey. And you have it. Maybe you don't know him, and you say, "Man, that sounds really hard." There's so many things in my life that make it impossible for me to do that. Jesus says, no, I took all that. I have a way for you to walk with me for an eternal purpose that makes a difference. Around those people that you're with, I can give them an eternal purpose. Maybe they're struggling. Maybe they're not sure where they're headed. What's going on? I will be with them. I will be with you. Maybe there's someone you know. Maybe you need to write a letter. Maybe you need to make a phone call. Maybe you need to make a visit. But even if you don't, as long as life goes on, we're going to be challenged to walk the journey of unity. And remember these four elements that Paul says we have.